0: We're up and running. Let's uh, bow for a word of prayer, have a word of prayer, and then we will begin tonight's class. Father, thank you again for the privilege we have of studying the Word of God. <clears throat> thank you for the fact that we live in a time and a place when we have ready access, access to it. And we certainly believe in Scripture as our final and ultimate authority, so we we want to know what it says, and we hope to be able to apply it to our own lives as uh, the spirit gives us enablement to do so. So help us tonight and thank you for each one who's joined us and we pray that our, our hearts and minds may be challenged to serve and live for you. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. So, uh, we are looking tonight at, uh, Well, I just, I noticed I don't have a quiz tonight. We're kind of running behind here. So I think trying to eliminate that for just a second here and move on. But I just wanted to kind of explain where we're at because Paul has taken so many, I call them rabbit trails, but so many side avenues. Uh, Overall, in the first seven chapters, he's really sort of defending himself to the Corinthians and his ministry, his conduct talking about his ministry, and that leads to a lot of other subjects that are important and interesting and helpful, but it's sometimes hard to follow where he's going and, and all the things he's saying. And right now, uh, we were discussing last week, uh, we're, we, we started on chapter five, and we, we were ending up on chapter five, where Paul uh, was speaking about Remember in chapter four, he had talked about the fact that he faced death almost every day and he was facing physical hardships and struggles and difficulties and this could lead to his death. And so he talks at the beginning of chapter five about the hope and what gives him a strength to carry on is the, is the, he's looking forward to the day when he'll have a glorified body and uh, he will be actually in the presence of the Lord, walking not by faith, but that is living by sight. And uh, then he mentions then at the end of chapter five, at, at the last couple of verses, the fact that uh, he's also incentivized by the fact that he will come to see Christ at the judgment seat. And so that's an incentive for his ministry and his living. Uh, then in chapter 5, he continues on, you remember, and he talks about trying he, his ministry is persuaded by proper motives. Remember, Paul has had opposition at Corinth. People are questioning uh, his motivation for his ministry, why he does what he does. Is he really genuine? Does he really care for us? Is he out for money? Is he deceiving us? So Paul uh, talks about his motive motivations, and he says, you know, Uh, it's plain to God. It's obvious to God. And I hope it's obvious to you that what we're doing is for your benefit. And because we're concerned about you, he, um, um, he then discusses his message in 16 through 21, as we saw last week, um, He said that uh, uh, he talks about uh, his message of regeneration, of the new birth, what he calls a new creation. We are new creations in Christ. He describes it in terms of reconciliation. We've been reconciled to God because we were at one time, but when we were unsaved, as he says in Romans, We were enemies he calls us enemies of god and uh, we have been now reconciled god has reconciled us through the death of christ and so he talks about that his death and that reconciliation process that um, we have the righteousness of christ applied to us to our account and god looks upon us as righteous or right with him in christ And then he talks about uh, service uh, to God involves um, service to God. Somebody's got their, somebody needs to mute their audio if you can. Somebody's got their audio on. Uh, Somebody's probably come in late and uh, I said, I mean, let me do it for you if you haven't done it. If you come in late, try to remember to mute your audio if you can remember that. Um, So, um, in chapter 6, he says that service to God involves great hardship in verses uh, 1 through 10. And... uh, He begins by first encouraging and admonishing them to receive his ministry, not to reject it, to accept it, and so forth. Um, And then um, we come to um, where we left off last time, we're just starting chapter six, He, once he has encouraged them, exhorted them to receive his ministry, to believe his message, to accept what he's saying, don't reject it, uh, then he now uh, really goes into these, this issue of hardships encountered in performing his ministry. Uh, this is uh, chapter six, verses three through 10. He begins in verse 3, he says, we put no stumbling block in anyone's path so that our ministry will not be discredited. I say here, as a co-worker with God, that he mentions, we are, you know, God's in verse 1, who was acting as an ambassador for Christ, Paul tried to put no stumbling block in anyone's path so that his ministry would not be discredited. It was inevitable that various accusations should have been leveled against Paul, given the success of his ministry and the jealousy of men. And I alluded to this, the fact that in his other epistles, he talks about opposition, people who didn't like his ministry, rejected his ministry, were jealous of his ministry, Judaizers particularly, uh, and others apparently. And, um, and so um, Paul, you know, is, is concerned. He is like, we should be concerned that our testimony, our ministry will not be discredited by anything that we do. Um, and uh, he, he, he wants to make sure that it's understood that these charges that are being brought up, <clears throat> these accusations are really without foundation and that he will be shown to be not guilty of any inconsistent conduct, any dishonest conduct. And there would be no uh, occasion for his adversaries to be able to really ridicule or malign the gospel. And that's what he's greatly concerned about, that nothing he does, that's why he has to sort of defend himself here because he's defending the gospel, the message that he preached the life of the Christian should be an excellent advertisement for the gospel. And so, you know, we may try to separate us from the gospel, and there's a sense in which that's true. We're all sinners, and we sin, and, you know, Jesus is not responsible for that. The gospel is not, but inevitably, our, our testimony, our witness of the gospel uh, is tied to our own conduct, and it's just hard to separate the two. And Paul didn't want his life, anything in his life, to be a hindrance or any, any, any or cause uh, ill repute to fall on the gospel message. So he says we don't put a stumbling block in anyone's path. We don't want the ministry disgraded. Verse 4, rather, as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way in great endurance in troubles, hardships, and distresses, in beatings, imprisonments, and riots, in hard work, sleepless nights, and hunger. So Paul now begins to list his hardships. He does this in 1 Corinthians. He did it already in 2 Corinthians 4. He does it in chapter 11, we'll see. He's doing this to commend and defend his ministry as a servant of God and provide the Corinthians with further material they might use in his defense that we talked about. He said in 5.12, we're not trying to commend ourselves to you again, but we're giving you an opportunity to take pride in us. So Paul wants them to defend him because in defending him, they're defending the truth of the gospel. Um, And so Paul's commendation was a matter of actions, not just words. And so he lists some of the things he endured for the gospel. And he lists nine afflictions, I guess we could call them here, in verse 4 and verse 5. They seem to fall maybe into three groups here. They're, you know, somewhat self-explanatory. They're introduced by a single heading, in great endurance. We commend ourselves in every way in great endurance. This seems to be uh, the construction here with this adjective great in front of it seems to be sort of a heading, a kind of a broad introductory description. And then he lists these three groups. The first group, the first uh, three trials, troubles, uh, hardships, and distresses um, kind of are just general trials, you might say. These are just general in nature And, uh, you know, we can have a... These are not meant to be dissected in detail. They sort of overlap. Troubles, hardships, distresses. They overlap somewhat. They're just trying to give a sense Paul is here. Troubles are sort of oppressive experience. Hardships refer to um, uh, singular... um, um, well, I see hardships referred to sort of adverse circumstances, I guess we might say. Uh, you know, that's a similar idea. Uh, so kind of oppressive, severe, you know, circumstance, I'm under difficult circumstances. Distresses that could suggest, you know, frustrations that one endures when there seems to be no way out of a problem. Maybe that's the distinction here among these. In the second group, we have sufferings that are inflicted by other people. These are involuntary, that is, there Paul didn't bring them upon himself. Beatings, imprisonments, and riots. These are these are things that happened to him as a result of his ministry that he had no way of really controlling. And then the third category: hard work, sleepless nights, and hunger, are you might say voluntary, he brought these upon himself. You know, hard work refers obviously probably to the task of preaching all the time, you know, and, and manual labor that he, he endured as he supported himself. Um, you remember he says um, about this manual labor in 1 Thessalonians um, 2.9, Surely remember, brothers, our toll and hardship. We work night and day in order not to be a burden to anyone while we preach the gospel to you. Or in 2 Thessalonians, you yourselves know how you ought to follow our example. We were not idle when we were with you. We didn't need anyone's food. We worked night and day laboring and tolling so we wouldn't be a burden. So Paul, uh, you know, he explains in 1 Corinthians that he didn't take any support among from the people he was actually ministering to at the time because he didn't want them to think that he was charging for the gospel message so he didn't he didn't do that when he was evangelizing these new areas with unbelievers he wanted them to see the gospel as being free like the free grace of god and so that was his policy he refers to uh, sleepless nights here uh And probably that, uh, and hunger, you know, these are voluntary actions again, in the, you know, that Paul endures in carrying out his ministry sleepless nights and the hunger that he obviously endured from time to time, and maybe a lot of the time. Verse six, he goes on, he says, uh, in purity, understanding, patience, and kindness in the Holy Spirit and in sincere love in truthful speech and in the power of God, with weapons of righteousness in the right hand and in the left. So after listing of the outward hardships in verses 4b through 5, Paul now turns in verse 6 to the inward virtues he sought to display, and then in verse 7, the spiritual equipment he relied upon during the discharge of his apostolic commission truthful speech and so forth weapons of righteousness in the right and left hands again most of these are fairly self-explanatory he says uh, purity you know he's talking here again about these inward virtues that he sought to display uh obviously that refers to moral uprightness you know um uh, and, and it's, it's linked to these other qualities like patience and kindness, you know. So it obviously has this sense of moral blamelessness and dealing with others, uh, understanding and patience, that kind of thing, understanding, you know, probably dealing with uh, his God-given ability to know the right thing to do uh, at the right time, wisdom, you know, insight, patience, Is the sense you know having to endure the insults he did without anger, without retaliation. Uh, Talks about kindness, you know, uh, kind of a generous uh, disposition that acts in love, sympathy, sympathetic towards others. So these are the kind of wonderful qualities produced by the Holy Spirit, obviously in Paul that he wanted to display. In order to uh, give the gospel the proper setting and not to have any disrespect or discredit come to the gospel, um, he talks about in the Holy Spirit. Emphasizes, you know, the one who indwells us and produces the spiritual fruit, uh, the kinds of things that we're talking about here, empowers us for service, and and the Holy Spirit had clearly demonstrated. Himself in the life of the Apostle Paul. In verse seven here, Paul makes reference to his proclamation of the truth, you know, in the power of God uh, with truthful speech and so forth. Uh, he introduces kind of a military metaphor here, a military illustration to try to explain his ministry. Um, he says, with weapons of righteousness and the right. And left-hand spiritual weapons, we're talking about. Uh, you know, Paul commonly, you know, sometimes used these military metaphors to uh, explain his ministry, or even our ministry. Memory tells us in Ephesians six, put on the whole armor, full armor of God, and he uses these terms of a soldier for his armor, breast, breastplate, breastplate of righteousness the shield of faith, the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. And so he's using that same sort of analogy here, metaphor here, of military weapons in the, in the pursuit of his ministry. These weapons of righteousness probably means weapons that are righteous in character. And the right and left hand, most people think, speaks of offense and defense maybe uh, for the attack and for the dense defense, like the, you know, the shield of faith here is more and, and the sword of the spirit, offense, defense and offense here. So maybe that's the same thing here when we talk about the right hand and the left hand. Verse 8, through glory and dishonor, bad report and good report, genuine yet regarded as imposters, known yet regarded as unknown, dying and yet we live on, beaten and yet not killed, sorrowful and yet always rejoicing, poor yet making many rich, having nothing and yet possessing everything. So at this point in his, what we might call his resume here, Paul may be reporting two opposite responses in his ministry. Those who oppose him may give him you know, may view him as a disgrace. He's probably talking about how some people view him, these opponents view him, and what's really true. So some, you know, view him as a disgrace, uh, a dishonor, a a bad character, an imposter, an unknown. Uh, Thus, in the contrast of verses 8 through 10, the paradoxical character of Paul's apostolic ministry is emphasized you know, behind these verses probably lie a number of actual allegations his opponents made against him. And he's listing these allegations and so forth, Um, but refuting them, you know, also. Um, Remember uh, Romans chapter three, he speaks about allegations. Why not say, as we are being slanderously reported, as saying, and some claim that we say, let's do evil that good may result. He's So in Romans 3, he's saying, hey, there are these people I hear saying things about us that are not true, slandering us. Verse Corinthians, he says, when we are slandered, we answer kindly. Uh, so in fact, various charges had been made against the apostle. And so he's taking the accusation here and, um, He's not really an imposter. He's genuine. He's taking those accusations, uh, he lets it stand or invest it with his own meaning and supplies an opposite complement to form a series of opposites that point to the difficulties and tension of living, you know, as an ambassador for Christ, uh, as he says in chapter 5, verse 20. So he's giving the divine assessment and the world's assessment. Uh, Paul is really genuine, but people often view him as an impo- imposter. An imposter. Uh, he really has a good report, but people are saying he has a bad report. <laughs> and so, uh, you know, he's contrasting these two sides of his ministry here to let the Corinthians know sort of what's really going on. Well, we uh, are winding down here now, Paul's defense of his ministry against criticism. He's been talking about the character of his ministry, and now we see an appeal for separation from sin and full reconciliation to Paul, 6.11 through 7.16. He opens here with an appeal that the Corinthians opened their affections To Paul. He says, We have spoken freely to you, Corinthians, and open wide our hearts to you. We are not withholding our affection from you, but you are withholding yours from us. As a fair exchange, I speak as to my children. Open wide your hearts also. Paul doesn't usually address his readers by name like he does here, Corinthians. He seems to do that on occasion when he's very deeply stirred, when his emotions are deeply stirred, you know, like the Galatians. You foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Very upset there in Galatians 3. Philippians 4. Moreover, as you Philippians know, he's talking here about how they have stood with him in supporting him in the gospel, and he actually names them. So so he's, uh, he does this, he seems to do this um, when we see kind of an intensity of his affections. And we see that here, um, that uh, Paul is, has a very intense feeling for the Corinthians, and the freedom he feels in speaking you know, freely to them. He speaks very openly about himself he you know he really lays himself bare here as we've seen um he he behind all this is he has a very warm and receptive attitude he says we have opened wide our hearts to you i say here para, uh, harris in his commentary paraphrases paul's words in verses 12 and 13 if there are any feelings of constriction or restraint in our relationship and you probably, I'm sure you, if you've lived long enough, you've known this. You have a relationship with another person. You've been friends or close friends. And then something happens. Something is constrained. The other person is pulled back and you don't really understand why. You don't know what has happened. Have you done something? Or they think you've done, you know, what, what is going on here? And that's what's happening to Paul. You know, he's been very open. He loves these people. And Harris says there, if there are any feelings of constraint, constriction or restraint in our relationship, they are on your side, not mine. I appeal to you as my spiritual children in fair exchange for my unrestricted affection. Give me yours too. So, you know, although Paul was what desire was complete reciprocity in this family relationship with them for them to be as open with him as he is with them. You know, he's aware that affection can only be given. (laughs) There's no way, you know, if you have this, if you have a relationship with another person and they are stepping away, you, you can, you know, you can plead with them like he's doing, but you can't make it whole yourself. So what's behind this restraint on their part? Why are they not as open with the Apostle Paul as he is with them? Well, that brings us, I think, to maybe the reason for this, an exhortation to separate from unbelievers and from sin. This section, I say, is a minor digression in Paul's argument in which he calls the Corinthians to holiness. He has just been lobbying strenuously for the Corinthians' affections, and he will continue that theme in seven two. The command of verse fourteen seems to come out of a clear blue. Um. You know when <laughs> he says, you know, uh, very strongly. Um. <laughs> uh, you know, make room for us in your hearts. And he talks about separation and all that kind of thing. Uh, What's going on here? Uh, This verse 14 here, uh, do not be yoked together with unbelievers. That doesn't seem to fit what we've been talking about, but it does fit if the reason for their restraint, for their openness is some sin on their part. Um, it may be likely, I say, that Paul is specifying the reason for the Corinthians' restraint while they have not been as open with him as one might expect. And that reason is their ongoing relationship, partnership with unbelievers. And uh, maybe you've experienced this. I've seen this in church situations and my experience many times where, and we've seen it in our own church. Maybe you've, you, know, you have a relationship with, a we have people in our church. We have members in our church. And all of a sudden they pull away. What's happening? Well, it's it's hard to say sometimes, but sometimes it's because of sin, sin in their lives. And that results in a problem. And that's what we have here. It looks like that the Corinthians still have a problem in their partnerships with unbelievers that they're unwilling to give up. Uh, Paul says very starkly here, do not be yoked together with unbelievers. For what do righteousness and wickedness have in common? Or what fellowship can light have with darkness? What harmony is there between Christ and Belial? Or what does a, a believer have in common with an unbeliever? What agreement is there between the temple of God and idols? I see here, Paul has appealed to the Corinthians for mutual openness in affection as in speech. His open heart, his own heart is open wide to them, but he knows and they know why they cannot reciprocate as fully as they ought. Some of them have an uneasy conscience about their continuing pagan associations that they know Paul disapproves of. This section is actually repeating the main point of 1 Corinthians 10, 1 through 22, where he warned the Corinthians of the danger of idolatry, 10, 14, flee from idolatry. Now there in 1 Corinthians 10, the problem was the Corinthians were continuing to associate with the idolatrous practices of the temples in Corinth. Uh, you, you know, you might say, why would Christians continue to be going to these pagan temples? Well, part of the reason is because at these pagan temples in a place like Corinth, these were like community centers. These were places where people gathered for all kinds of celebrations, local celebrations, civic ce- celebrations, family celebrations, so You might get invited to a birthday party at the pagan temple, where there could be where there would be idolatry going on and so forth. So this is a tough problem for the Corinthians and for others in the ancient world, because Paul will not allow any kind of association with idolatry and everything about the ancient world, the ancient Roman cities, uh, was involved with idolatry. Um, and so uh, the opening sentence injunction, do not be yoked together with unbelievers, is clearly not a prohibition against all associations with unbelievers, as he made clear in his previous letter, 1 Corinthians 5, 9 through 10. So I'm just stating here, when we read this, don't be yoked together with unbelievers. What does the believer have in common with an unbeliever? The particular issue here is probably this idolatry. Paul is not forbidding all associations with unbelievers. He makes that clear You know, in the first letter where he says, I've written to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Not at all meaning the people of this world who are immoral are the greedy and swindlers idolaters. In that case, you'd have to leave this world. You're going to say, what I'm talking about is brothers and sisters (laughs) who, who are immoral and claim to be Christians. You have to associate Disassociate, but you can't disassociate from all immoral people. You have to work with them, you have to deal with them, and so forth. We have to deal with sinners constantly. So we can't just totally separate from, from these kinds of things. But he won't allow actual going to these temples, this idolatry. Uh, you know, just to reinforce that point that we can't disassociate ourselves from unbelievers completely, and we shouldn't try to. After all, we want to try to witness and evangelize them. Um, and sometimes in Christianity, this separation from unbelievers can be overemphasized to the point of, you know, sort of a cultic separation where you don't associate really at all. You have no con- contact at all with any unbeliever, which is not really what Paul is arguing here. You know, in fact, we know Paul, for instance, encouraged. The Christian partner partner in a mixed marriage uh, to maintain that relationship as long as possible. Remember, he says, if any brother has a wife who is not a believer, and she's willing to live with him, he must not divorce her. So, uh, Paul said, you know, you know, if you if you get saved, one partner gets saved, you don't leave the other person. Uh, even in a marriage, that's a pretty close relationship. Uh, and you know, he says in 1 Corinthians 7, 20, 39, a woman is bound to her husband as long as he lives, but if her husband dies, she's free to marry anyone she wishes, but he must belong to the Lord. So Christians are only allowed to, to marry other Christians, You know, but uh, one does not uh, break up all relationships with unbelievers, even married relationships. Instead, as I said, this is a prohibition against forming close attachments with non-Christians. Paul has this agricultural metaphor here, you know, don't be yoked together. Don't get into a double harness with unbelievers, two oxen yoked together. This is based upon Deuteronomy 22.10 that prohibited the, the yoking of an ox and a donkey, a donkey together. You can't yoke an ox and a donkey together. Um, Leviticus 19.9 prohibited, pro, prohibited the crossbreeding of animals of different species, things like that. Uh, Paul is prohibiting here this diverse yoke or this double harness. Now, exactly what that uh, all that all that prohibits is not stated directly here. You know, uh, I've just said you know it um, it doesn't it doesn't forbid all associations with unbelievers, obviously. Um, but it does involve uh, you know um, it does involve compromising with pagans such as contracting mixed marriages so as I said a believer should not knowingly marry an unbeliever Um, so Paul's sort of giving a general statement here and we have to sort of apply that you know in specific instances here's how I would sort of give the Bill Combs (laughs) for whatever it's worth general uh, principle here. We should not form any relationship, whether temporary or permanent, with unbelievers that would lead to a compromise of Christian standards or jeopardize the consistency of our Christian witness. Trying to, you know, think through, uh, thinking through, and this is what many would say, I think, It's the general idea here. We wouldn't wanna form a relationship, temporary or permanent with unbelievers that would lead to a compromise of Christian standards or jeopardize the consistency of our Christian witness. Um, And why is that? Well, because an unbeliever may not share our standards, our sympathies, our goals. Uh, to use an illustration, could a Christian ha- be in business with an unbeliever? Should a should a could a Christian go into business with a non-Christian? Yes, yes, they could, I think. They could go into business with a non-Christian, but I think it would it would it would depend upon this what I just said as long as it does not lead one to compromise one's christian standards or to jeopardize one's christian witness then one could in effect be a partner you know in a business with an unbeliever as long as that does not happen you'd want to you would want to separate yourself then if that's what's going to happen so you know it's this has to be applied and it's it's not always easy to apply but uh, I think this is the general principle that we should operate under here. Now, each of these rhetorical questions that Paul gives here, you know, what do righteousness and wickedness have in common? What fellowship can light have with darkness? What harmony is there between Christ and Belial? What does a believer have in common with the unbeliever? What agreement is there between the temple of God and idols? Those five rhetorical questions all presuppose a negative answer. No. And they're trying to stress the incompatibility of Christianity with heathenism, with paganism, uh, the incongruity of intimate relationships of fellowship between believers and unbelievers. Uh, remember Paul addressed this uh In 1 Corinthians, you can't drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. This is when Paul was forbidding idolatry, going to these pagan temples. Can I have a part in the Lord's table and table of demons? Because he says demons are really behind all false religion, all pagan religion, all these idolaters. Um, Demons are behind all idols. So you can't take part in this idol worship and so forth. Um, so after, uh, comparisons of, you know, these abstract nouns, righteousness and light with wickedness and darkness, uh, he has a couple of personal comparisons here, Christ and the believer with Belial. Belial is a name for Satan in the contemporary literature of the day. What is there between Christ and Satan, we could say. Uh, the final contrast here in 16, what agreement is there between the temple of God and idols sort of brings us to a climax and prompts what follows about the temple in verses 16b and 18. He says, for we are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will live with them and walk with them I will be their God and they will be my people. So I say here the chief reason why here for believers are not to enter into compromising relationship with unbelievers, don't be yoked together with unbelievers, is that they belong exclusively to God. So corporately, the Christian community forms the temple of the living God. If you remember back to 1 Corinthians chapter 3, and verses 16 and 17, where he talks about us corporately as the temple of God. I say here to prove his point, Paul quotes somewhat freely from several Old Testament passages that promise God's presence and protection. I will live with them and walk among them. That's based on Leviticus uh, 26 11a um, and A and 12a with possible allusions over to Exodus. You can find similar things there. So apparently the idea is that, you know, God's people should be devoted exclusively to God is what he's saying. Verse 17, therefore, come out from among them and be separate, says the Lord. Touch no unclean thing and I will receive you. So he introduces here with the therefore the practical implications of 14 through 16. In keeping with the promise of his presence and protection, God demands purity of life and separation from evil. Therefore, come out from among them and be separate, says the Lord. Touch no unclean thing. He's quoting Isaiah 52, 11. And the phrase, and, or then I will receive you probably is from Ezekiel. So he's drawing from Old Testament truths here about the need from separation from sin, idolatry, unbelievers. God's acceptance and approval of his people is dependent on their obedience to his commands. Separation from the world, you know, leads to fellowship with God. You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity against God? Anyone who chooses to be a friend with the world, enemy with God. So this is a hard thing to navigate sometimes because, um, as I've said, um, you can, some Christian churches and communities have, have, uh, have had so much separation from unbelievers that they have no opportunity for witness. They have no, you know, uh, that is they, you know, that they would say it's a sin even to have an unbelieving friend, you know. Well, that's not, that's not right. You know, we can have unbelieving friends and we probably should have unbelieving friends, But uh, that's where we have to be careful about not compromising our testimony, our convictions, not being involved in sinful things. Some some unbelievers we just have to separate from because just to be associated with them involves sin. There's just no way around it. So it can be difficult to navigate some of these sometimes. Verse 18, and I will be a father to you, and you will be my sons and daughters," says the Lord Almighty. The series of quotation ends with the weaving together of some other Old Testament passages: Second Samuel, Jeremiah, Isaiah. These passages hold out the promise that God will act as a true father to those whose sons and daughters, uh, to those sons and daughters who identify themselves with Him. But identification with God requires repudiation of unworthy associations that spiritually contaminate. Verse 1 of chapter 7, Therefore, since we have these promises, dear friends, let us purify ourselves from everything that contaminates body and spirit, perfecting holiness out of reverence for God. I say here, Paul has previously emphasized in his chain of Old Testament quotations the privilege of being a dwelling place of God, and the benefits of obedience to the divine will. Now he concludes here in 7-1 with an exhortation to be pure and holy. Since we have such promises, we have promises such as these, let us purify ourselves. So as recipients you know, of such promises and of fellowship with God, all Christians have to uh, avoid every source of conf- defilement in any aspect of their lives, body, and spirit, denotes the Christian in their total personality, outwardly and inwardly, and their relations to other people you know, and with God. I say here, Paul's uh, exhortation here suggests that the Corinthians had become defiled perhaps by occasionally sharing meals at idle shrines or by continuing to attend festivals or ceremonies in pagan temples. That's clearly what's going on in first Corinthians. And Paul had really strongly spoken against that, but it may be that they just haven't been able to break this off. They know how Paul, uh, you know, is upset about they may be even maintaining their membership in local pagan cult so they know what paul's position is here um and they may um and this may be the reason for they're not as open with paul and not uh, the relationship has a barrier there because they know they're doing wrong And this has caused them not to be as open with them as Paul is with them. Their affections for him are not as obvious as his is for them. Um, But if they would make a clean break, Paul is saying here with their pagan life, in any form and every form, they would be bringing their holiness, their sanctification nearer to completion. And so the Christian life involves, you know, we have to separate from sin and evil. And there is the idea of our family relationship with God. And ultimately, we're interested in our sanctification, as 7.1 indicates. So we see now a renewed appeal for openness toward Paul. Remember, he started that in chapter 7, verse 1 where he appealed to them, hey, listen, what's wrong? What's the barrier here? And he sort of identifies it really as sin on their part and probably a lack of separation uh, in their pagan associations, probably. So now he renews this appeal. Make room for us in your hearts. We've wronged no one. We've corrupted no one. We have exploited no one. I do not say this to condemn you. I have said before that you have such a place in our hearts that we would live or die with you. I've spoken to you with great frankness, and I take great pride in you. I'm greatly encouraged, he says. In all our troubles, my joy knows no bounds. I see after the digression of 614 through 7, Paul again appeals for the Corinthians' full affection that he first requested in 6.13. There he asked for them to open up their hearts to him. Here he asked for them to make room for us in your hearts. Paul knew of nothing in his past conduct or instruction that would cause them to doubt his sincerity or lose confidence in him. Paul had been accused of bringing about the moral and financial ruin. Apparently, that's, that seems to be the idea of exploited. He says... We have exploited no one, Uh, but apparently Paul has been accused of that, of innocent victims of Corinth by callously exploiting them. So he's been accused of this, but it's not true. But apparently some of the Corinthians were inclined, or maybe at least in part, some were to sort of believe these charges. And as he's done before in the epistle, and we've seen before, Paul can do nothing more in reply than to appeal to his own clear conscience and the Corinthians' knowledge of his conduct. All they have to do is just look back on his conduct while he was there, and, you know, and they will see that these charges are groundless. He's insisting that they're groundless. They should know that. There's really no basis for these kinds of charges. They don't have any proof there's no evidence of this these are just uh, these are just the charges that have no substance but that happens that happens in churches people make charges or people believe things that just aren't true and it causes a lot of problems at the beginning of verse 3 when paul says i do not say this to condemn you he may, be, he may mean that his mentioning of the charges was not to imply the Corinthians really believed them, or that's possible, or possibly Paul may mean that his effort to clear himself did not amount to blaming them. When he says, I do not say this to condemn you. I'm not, I'm not trying to blame you. In any case, whatever the case, he goes on here in verse 3, to remind them, as he did back in chapter six, verse eleven, that they occupy this permanent and secure place in His love and concern. You have such a place in our hearts that we would live or die with you. Um, nothing, you know, even though they're leveling these charges, somebody's leveling charges against Paul. Even light, even death itself would not divorce them from his affection, he says, which is an amazing thing to say that he's not, he's honestly saying, you know, nothing would cause me to lose my love and concern for you. I say in light of all, all we know of the situation at Corinth, Paul's expression of confidence in verse four should say may seem out of place. Certainly the church was not perfect and probably never would be. But Paul believed he had grounds. Uh, he believed he had grounds. He probably said for pride in his converts. So, in spite of all these his frustrations, and in the midst of all his uh, affliction, he's filled with comfort and overflowing joy. Verse four, you know, I take great pride in you. I greatly encouraged. In all our troubles, my joy knows no bounds. Now, why would that be? Well, the reason is probably the safe arrival of Titus in Macedonia with encouraging news about Corinth. Remember, uh, Paul is going to say in just a moment, for when we came into Macedonia, we had no rest, but we were harassed at every turn. So you remember the situation. Paul made that painful visit over to Corinth, returned to Ephesus, sent a letter to Corinth, the severe letter with Titus, and he's waiting for Titus to come back. And he he says, um, you know, we were, we we. We, we didn't wait in Ephesus any longer. We went to Troas, and then we went to Macedonia. We came to Macedonia. We still had no rest, but we were harassed at every turn. Conflicts on the outside. Fear was in. But God, who comforts the downcast, covered us by the coming of Titus, and not only by his coming, but also by the comfort you had given him. He told us about your longing for me, your deep sorrow, your ardent concern for me, so my joy was greater than ever. So, uh, Where did this joy come from? It came from the fact that Paul has now learned in in the historical situation, he's now learned as he explains to them that when he came to Macedonia, Titus came back from Corinth and brought good news. So Paul now returns to this travel narrative that was suspended at 2.13. I alluded to this before. Uh, we're going to look here at the report from Titus um, and uh, Paul's meeting with Titus. For when we came to Macedonia, we had no rest. We were harassed on every turn. Conflicts on the outside, fears within. Remember, this is what I alluded to. Paul's in Ephesus, and he's waiting for Titus to return from Corinth but well, he goes on to Troas, but he doesn't find Titus there. So well, I had, still had no peace of mind. I couldn't find my brother Titus. I said goodbye to them at Troas, went on to Macedonia. And uh, he comes to Macedonia. I say, at this point, Paul resumes the account of his movements that he had abandoned at 2.13. So remember, I said you could actually jump from 2 to chapter 7. <laughs> Everything in between was Paul's defense of his ministry. Remember, he says in 2, 12, and 13, Now, when I went to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ, he left Ephesus. He was, wanted to hear from Titus, but he left and went to, went to Troas found the Lord had opened a door for me. I still had no peace of mind because I did not find my brother Titus there. I'm waiting to hear how you responded to the severe letter. So I said goodbye to them, went to Macedonia. And you could just jump right to chapter seven. For when we came to Macedonia, we had no rest. So uh, that's 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 what historically happened to Paul. And in between, in Second Corinthians, he's giving us, his uh, explanation of, uh, of his ministry and his conduct and so forth. So at this point, I say he resumes his account. When Paul arrived in Macedonia, he had expected to meet Titus, but his hosts were frustrated just as they had been at Troas, and he had no rest. I say, you know, you know Paul's references here uh, to conflicts on the outside, he talks about. We were harassed, conflicts on the outside. Um, may you know we don't know exactly what this points to. Uh, this may refer to you know quarrelling that focused on Paul, or to opposition or persecute him that uh, persecution that he faced when he came into Macedonia. We don't know, but when he came to Macedonia, he had some problems initially there. Fears within, he says, Uh, 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 conflicts on the outside, fears within. This may be, again, fears about, you know, what's going to happen with Titus, what kind of reception did he get, maybe his safety and travel, how the Corinthians are going to respond to the severe letter. Anyway, Paul is very upset here, very emotional. (laughs) You know, he went to Troas, he he went to Macedonia, and you know things have not uh, not don't look good. But verse six, there's one of these. But God reminds you of Romans, doesn't it? But God, who comforts the downcast, comforted us by the coming of Titus, and not only by his coming, but also by the comfort you had given him. He told us about your longing for me, your deep sorrow, your ardent concern for me, so that my joy was greater than ever. As Paul waited in Macedonia, it may have seemed to Paul that from a human point of view, his whole future as the apostle of the Gentiles was related to the Corinthians' reaction to his assertions of the authority in the severe letter delivered by Titus. The fact that Paul had not found Titus in Troas nor upon his initial arrival in Macedonia tended to confirm his worst fears. But... (laughs) God, he says, who comforts the downcast, comforted us by the coming of Titus. And he mentions here, you know, three things that God used to dispel or dispense uh, comfort to him, to to the depressed, you might say, or downhearted apostle. He says, first of all, the arrival of Titus, he comforts us by the coming of Titus. He comforted us by the positive experience, uh, Titus' positive experience at Corinth. We were comforted by the coming of Titus, but not only that, by the fact that you had positively received him. You had comforted Titus when he came there, the comfort you had given him. And then, of course, finally, by this reassuring news that of the Corinthians' attitude toward Paul. They're longing to see him now and to be reconciled with him. Their deep sorrow over their, you know, disloyal behavior, their ardent concern, you know, maybe to defend Paul's cause and to follow his directions in the disciplining of the guilty party. So this arrival of Titus at Macedonia from Corinth, you know, and the encouragement he received brought Paul a joy that was increased by the favorable news that Titus brought. So, Paul is really happy at this point in his ministry, and he's relating that to the Corinthians. Well, that we'll have to stop here for night. He's going to talk now about that severe letter that Titus carried, its effect on the Corinthians. And, uh, you know, he was concerned about this letter, as he's going to tell us, and what effect it would have. And he's happy very very glad that it's ultimately had the positive effect that he hoped it would have all right let's uh, stop here for tonight and let me uh stop this share here and i gotta escape this here